0: This podcast is brought to you by Okado Technology, a division of the Okado Group that builds the software and systems powering okado.com, the world's largest online-only grocery retailer. We've been disrupting the grocery industry for over 15 years using the cloud, robotics, AI, and IoT. Find out more and check out career opportunities at infoq.link forward slash Okado. Welcome to the InfoQ Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Bryant. Daniel is easily one of the most well-read, well-informed software professionals I know. It does not matter what conference I seem to go to these days, I tend to run into Daniel. Daniel is a past CTO. He's most often found in small groups discussing microservices and architectures. He's the passionate one. Today, we focus precisely on that. In this podcast, Daniel takes us on a bit of a journey from monoliths to microservices. Along this journey, Daniel covers seminal topics like bounded context, when's the right time to begin to break up microservices, how to start, what to break off, and then once you've began this journey, what's next? He discusses concepts like event storming, practices like observability and tracing, and much, much more. We wrap with Daniel briefly talking about one of his talks called The Seven Deadly Sins of Microservices. So if you're at a point where you're starting to see velocity impacted by things like engineering team size, or you just need to scale portions of the stack separately from each other, this podcast is for you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Daniel, welcome to the InfoQ Podcast. Thanks, Wes. Uh, good to be here. I'm really excited to do this podcast with you. We've wanted to do it for a while. So most recently, you were a chief scientist at OpenCredo, but you've shifted your role just a bit in the last uh, little bit. Can you tell us what uh, your your plans are for the future? Yeah, so I'm still
1: forming them, to be honest, but I'm doing a consulting CTO gig with Specto Labs, right. a company based in the UK, uh, focusing around microservice testing, sort of products and training and, and consulting as well. Also doing a bit of freelance um, consulting in, in general, loving the writing, I write for InfoQ and a few other websites as well. So for the moment I'm kind of keen to you know get back to the core technical skills. I'm really quite looking forward to playing with a lot of super interesting tech flying around at the moment, IoT stuff, lots of very interesting languages. I think JavaScript's kind of you know got a bit of a renaissance going on. So keen to play with this with an eye to May, helping businesses deliver value from it. I've always yeah. been about that, right, from like a very sort of um, junior point in my career. I, I love software development. and I love playing with the toys, but I get even more satisfaction when I can help others, you know, play with the toys and deliver value, whatever that means for them. Yeah, absolutely. So we were talking
0: just before this podcast that uh, you've been working with microservices for five, six years, even before we were calling them microservices. What was those, those first projects like back uh, four or five years ago, working with microservices?
1: Yeah, so I worked for a company called IAT, uh, where I ended up being the CTO there, Instant Access Technologies, another startup based out of Old Street in London, proper hipster alley, there it is. <laughs> um, we, we didn't want to do classic SOA. We knew we had a very well-defined set of context if you call them bounded context as we're now calling it but we knew we had a very well defined set of context for the way the application was going to process data and deliver value to to end users it was basically a price comparison website we didn't want to go heavy soa because we we, a few of us have been on you know classic soa projects uh uddi all that kind of pain but we didn't also want to go monolith because we knew there'd be shifting scaling requirements we knew we had a fair few developers crowded around the code base and therefore between us, was I think three or four of us sort of architected it. between us, we came up with this notion of, you know, loosely coupled services. And we were gonna be spitting JSON over the wire. Um, we were gonna be using status codes, HTTP status codes, rather than, you know, trying to do something else clever. And it kind of went from there. And then literally sort of a year into the gig, we started seeing other people going, hey, microservices, you know, doing this, doing that we were like, that looks very similar to what we're doing. Yeah, sure, sure. And then the rest is history, yeah? Like, you know, when Adrian Cockcroft jumped on it, and obviously Sam Newman, and all the big names now, um, the history has been, you know, written so. But uh, that's how I got into it.
0: Yeah, so you talk about bounded context. I remember uh, the days of designing that Those schemas and it was that big model that was all the way across the entire enterprise. That top-down design.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, So, what do you see as, I guess, the differences between microservices today versus the uh, SO the service-oriented architectures of the past?
1: Yeah. So, I'll I'll start by talking about the canonical domain model. That was always the classic. You you sort of alluded to there. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I know uh, companies I work with spent months and years trying to get that right. Sometimes, and I think like you know it's very hard to model the real world in one way, right? You know, every model is wrong, some are useful, we say. So uh, trying to fit the, you know, whatever your business is into one model is super hard. And I think even though SOA, the sort of classic SOA, lent towards services, it was still very much a monolithic thinking in terms of domains and, and so forth. So. Microservices are a move away from that. I think you know, move. I'm really a big fan of um, Adrian Cockross stuff. So you know, loosely coupled and um, so uh, with bounded contexts. Right this notion of, you know, we've, there's a lot of good things with service-oriented architecture, classic SOA. I think we're, we're quick to say bad things about SOA, but there's a lot of good things about it. But we're taking concepts from domain-driven design, about how we break up and how we model our domain, and sort of applying them with, with classic SOA as well. So I think there is a very clear difference in terms of the loose coupling. Right. That's, you know, between contexts and between services, the loose coupling, not relying on whistels and heavyweight contracts, necessarily. Um, something I hear a lot people talk about is postal law. Be conservative in what you send, but um, liberal in what you accept. Right. Those kind of things. Whereas classic contract stuff was very much, you know, a strict, sure. almost like a legal contract. I give you this, you give me that. And there's benefits for that as well. But microservices is moving more towards the Postel's law approach. So you just mentioned kind of the definition that
0: Adrian Cockcroft uses for microservices, loosely coupled service-oriented architecture with bounded context. Mm. Let's break that down a bit. When, uh, when you say loosely coupled... What exactly do you mean?
1: So for me, it's, um, yeah, I remember back in the day learning about cohesion and coupling. That was one of the first things I took away, I think it was from Robert Martin's books actually, on um, clean, clean, uh, clean code and various ones like that. For me, the, the loose coupling is around this um, notion of things can be interchanged. Right. I think that's what we're seeing in microservices. So in theory, uh, or as the theory goes, you can swap out bits of your architecture of your domain, shall we say. So the loose coupling is you're not designing stuff. Like With a monolith, often uh, we end up with spaghetti code. Right. Everything kind of gets tied together. It's very easy, say, in a classic monolithic application to, to cheat across defined boundaries. So like in Java, we have interfaces, um, but it's often you can sneak around the back, say. If you're dealing with one code base, you can sneak around and access something you probably shouldn't be able to, and that creates coupling. As soon as you've done that, then it's a kind of broken Windows thing. Often other developers will start cheating in the same way. And you know after a few years years of that, you can get very good productivity. But after a few years, everything does become a bit of a big ball of mud, as they say, right. or a spaghetti coat. So um, loosely coupled in my mind is, yeah, it's about breaking things up, defining clear interfaces, and enforcing those kind of boundaries with a well-defined interface.
0: Okay, makes sense. All right, then the next piece of that, that definition is bounded context, of course, and, and you've already hinted at it there, but can you expand it a little bit on how you define that bounded context and how you scope? Yes, I
1: mean, the classic sort of definition comes from The domain driven design world um eric evans vaughan vernon did some fantastic work with their their classic books so i'm very much um you know would recommend listeners have a have a look at this kind of stuff you know the, the classic kind of ddd approach in terms of scoping them it's really tricky it's one of the hardest parts i think of microservices if i'm honest uh it's the same regardless of whether you're doing microservices or a monolith scoping the boundaries of domain components within your application, because, you know, whatever you're coding, it, there's clearly domains. There might be a, say, as an example, I've done a lot of work recently with e-commerce stuff. There's always a user domain. There's always a, say, checkout domain, and there's always a stock domain. And how you define what goes into each of those is genuinely really tricky. Right. The domain-driven design books were written before microservices, but they give you a lot of hints about how to scope those those bounded contexts. Things like looking for a ubiquitous language, they call it which is a kind of term which just says, are we speaking the same language in the context? Uh, I often notice, you know, sort of split for context is when the business uses subtly different words, subtly different languages between the different parts of the code base. You know, you might say user here, but account over here. And they're kind of the same thing. Like a user has an account, but you can split them. The business uses different logic, say, or different words when talking about the logic contained within each of those domains. One might be more focused on security. One's more focused on, you know, what the representation of the user within this application. Yeah. Those kind of things. Getting the kind of Goldilocks service or the Goldilocks. Um, model of the just right service is genuinely something I've struggled with for, for many, uh, yeah, many years. And I see it with all the clients I work with. Uh, it's, it's really challenging. And then one of the key things is don't be afraid of experimentation, you know, a bit of upfront design, but no big upfront design, as they say, a bit of upfront design and then kind of iterate as you go along, as you learn more about the domain.
0: Right. So, but let's talk about that, right? So you worked with some clients. What do you recommend to them to go through this exercise? And it's, it's almost subject verb analysis of UML that comes to mind. But mm, yeah. how do you really get down and define the domain for each of these particular areas?
1: Yes, yeah, so it, it definitely depends on whether the client is, say, building a new application perhaps they're a startup they haven't got product market fit yet versus a company with a legacy as we call it or a money-making application so that that's definitely something and in some ways I don't recommend microservices if you are starting off and don't have product market fit because you don't actually know your domain you don't actually know sort of what you're yeah what you're modeling in effect so perhaps putting that for aside for a second if you've got an existing application or a suite of applications uh, how do you break those things up and usually it's a combination of a couple of things. It's chatting to the business, depending on how your organization is organized, the structure, you might be able to see clear parts. Oh, that's the billing team over there. That's the account team. That's the stock team, that kind of thing. So those are good hints to kind of, services there sometimes you don't see that at all you just have organization where it's just you know literally sort of sales marketing that kind of thing very layered type organization and then you have to dive into the code um, and look for kind of like like you were saying look for kind of net certain nouns you'll see popping up everywhere look for certain yeah verbs on those on those nouns those kind of things that will often Give you hints as, as where to start looking if you can see you know the classic we've already mentioned user service or user-like service as you say often you find things like users that they, they almost become cross-cutting concerns because the user touches every part of the application but if you start going you know as you're doing some sort of analysis on, on the code um maybe you are doing like you do sort of the, the word uh, clouds for example in terms of like nouns that show up in, in the code base adam tornhill talks about a lot of these Cool techniques i'm a massive fan of adam tornhill he did a great presentation at qcon london actually recently and he talked about um, various tools to do analysis of code bases so that yeah. so that can often provide like sort of the core information to start your detective work in terms of those things
0: as you were talking one of the things that was going through my mind was conway's law at what point does the architecture dictate the design or what point do you decide to start changing the art- architecture to dictate the model that you want.
1: And I think it's it's a lot of things wrapped up there whereas I'm honest in there in terms of the organizational design, you know, organizational structure and design influences the architecture and vice versa. So you see a lot of people like James Lewis talking about the inverse Conway maneuver where you actually structure your organization to force the code to be a certain way. Sure. So there's two ways you can do it and that in itself is which one do you do? And often it's when I worked with clients you look at is the business a technology led business or a business led business excuse the bad phrasing for a moment if they're a technology company it's often um, easy to say here's how you do your organizational structure or or often they're so flexible you don't really need to do that and you look purely at the the code level and as the code base grows as the business grows successfully people will form around areas of the code and that's your kind of cross-functional teams Um, but with a classic organization with sort of a business-focused organization, it can be quite tricky to do that. They're going to say, you know, that they often, very stereotypical here, but they'll look at IT as a cost center. So they'll be like, why should I structure the organization around IT? You're just providing us a service. And there, it's often best to alter the technology um, first, you know, in terms of, and demonstrate some sort of some provable wins if you can split the technology out and try at the same time to prove the business case for, look, if you work as cross-functional teams, you can actually deliver... Features that deliver value to customers much quicker. Yeah. You know, you often have to work a lot more with the, the business if they are are sort of a very much a bottom line driven classic enterprise. Yeah, that's an interesting take on it. I hadn't uh, thought of it that way.
0: You mentioned something earlier about how you don't necessarily recommend microservices for a company starting out or greenfield type application. Can you expand on that just a bit?
1: Yeah, this one's a controversial topic. So I've seen some great stuff actually. Martin Fowler uh, and uh, Stefan Tilkov had a great discussion on. Online, which you, if people can search on online, they can find some very interesting thoughts around that. I think Martin was pretty much saying, don't do microservices first. Right. And Stefan was kind of arguing around those things. So, but we're seeing uh, just as a counter to those things, as in, I always enjoy hearing thought leaders talk about these things, but looking in the wild, uh, I've actually seen a few clients who've tried microservices first and did get a bit stuck in terms of they didn't actually know what they were modeling. They didn't know their domain. But we are seeing successful companies. Um, Classic again at QCon London was Monzo, a very uh, innovative bank here in the UK, talking about how they built Go-based microservices to build a bank, which is like not an easy domain to to work with. So, And I've worked at Starling, there's another bank in the UK. I did a hackathon a couple of weekends ago, and they've done, I believe it's Java microservices. So they did know their domain, Properly first because finance is quite a constrained domain to some degree but they went all in on microservices so the kind of stuff in the wild shows us it can be done you can go microservices first but most of the examples i've seen have been that they knew their domain very well up front they might be a new business but they understood the domain they understood the models associated with that domain and a lot of the domains i'm hearing about are financially driven so finance is you know it's kind of a very much a bounded universe, I think, from my experience of finance. So it's it's easier to model. Whereas if you're going, you know, you're building some super innovative new product that's going to change kind of the world. Because of that, that that definition, you don't actually know what you're doing. You're literally, you know, it's classic lean startup. You might put something out there, like an old MVP, minimum viable product, and you say, is anyone interested in this? And then it's like, yes. Is anyone going to pay me money for this? Is there a market for it? So as you're learning, as you're going along, the model forms itself, the domain forms itself, I should say. Right. So they're trying to go, you know, you either go super granular with the services, and then you just get this glut of things which are super hard to operate, because they're very granular, there's lots of them, or you're constantly rewriting boundaries. And in that case, you might as well be building a monolith, because it's much easier to rewrite boundaries in a monolith than it is microservices. Yeah. So those are kind of my thoughts on it, but, you know, I think your mileage may, may vary. We're seeing both things in the wild. Sure,
0: that, that's an interesting discussion, to. Surely, there's more, right? Because uh, you've got companies that have been around for years that obviously um, know their domain well, but they're still building in monoliths. Uh, Etsy comes to mind, for example. Yeah, yeah, good example. So, what what else is at play? What what else might I guess, be a, a thing that you should look for that might be a smell that your monolith might want to break over into microservices?
1: I think some key things, I mean, it's it's generally two things I've seen in my client work. It's either that the technology doesn't scale. Okay. So, you know, you're having to basically load balance across massive amounts of servers. You've got different areas of your architecture, which should really be scaling independently, but you, you can't because they're a monolith. And the second one, which is equally as valid, not not perhaps so much um, respected in when I initially chat with clients, is that you can't scale your dev team. Right. So you've got like the analogy is if you know, if you literally can see a monolithic rock, if we're all trying to chip away at this monolithic rock, and that's kind of analogous to us coding (laughs) in the monolithic code base, you can only get so many people around that rock so many people on the code base before you start hitting each other, tripping over each other, those kind of things. Absolutely. I did actually some work about three or so years ago now with a company called Not On The High Street here in the UK. It's kind of a UK version of Etsy, funny enough. And they initially contacted me and said, you know, we're really struggling scaling our development efforts. So for me, that was quite interesting. And to actually get in there and see, you know, the code base um, was pretty well architected. It was just a case of, there was, you know, some things that have gone a bit coupled over the years uh, and they just needed to, it's a bit of help in kind of understanding where some boundaries would be brought in. And there were some clear bits which needed to scale very differently than, than other parts in the system.
0: Say you're in a monolith and you've established, so you start to kind of identify these boundaries through through whatever process. What do you, how do you start to break off the pieces? How do you start to migrate from a monolith to a microservice? What do you recommend?
1: Common question, Wes. Yeah, and it, and it is difficult because it, uh, a lot of people, out, you know, when I approach me after I speak at conferences, every business, every organisation is unique, depending on how much um, the, the kind of skills you currently have, the tolerance to experimentation, things like that. But I strongly recommend starting small. And then working your way up. So the classic, you know, I took this from Groupon and a bunch of other um, companies that have talked about it publicly as well. Is I'll look for something, you know, in, in combination with the company I'm working with. I'll look for something that's small but adds value. So something within their business context. The classic is a user registration page or a um, newsletter sign-up page. Something that you know clearly adds value to the business, but it's not business critical in that. And um, there's going to be a lot of pressure on us to get it right first time. Those kind of things. And then literally break it out and the key thing is make sure it's a complete break often you have to put what's called seams and michael feathers talks a lot about putting seams so some kind of api between the new bit you're breaking out and the existing code base that in itself you have to you know figure out where the seams are and and put in code appropriately and make sure there's a contract between those two two parts are now being split out but the most important thing is getting the whole delivery process from soup to nuts, shall we say. So once you've got this service, you've managed to kind of identify the seam, you've pulled it out, you must build a supporting pipeline, supporting continuous delivery build pipeline, because with microservices, there's gonna be many more things than just one monolith. So we need to make sure we can rapidly deploy changes right. to all these other things and it'd be very easy to go into a code base and you know a bit of a powerpoint architect style thing you could draw in all your dashes in the code base and go, out ah, here this is clearly the user section this is clearly the checkout service yeah. these kind of things but without the ability to rapidly get things into production and experiment you know it's, it's gonna be really hard so get that pipeline in um and then Everything from the developer experience locally through to some QA. You need to engage with QA people, need to engage with InfoSec as much as you do the architects and, and so forth. Make sure whatever you do, get it into production, get it running alongside the existing app. And only then will you be in a good position to start, you know, ah, we've, we've learned some lessons about how we break out the architecture. But I bet you've learned a bunch more lessons around the operational side, the developer experience, the InfoSec, all these kind of things. And that is where the real value is in my experience in traditional or enterprises. Sure, absolutely. So let's keep
0: walking the stack, right? So we have this monolith, and we we identify some boundaries, we establish a seam, and we kind of pull out this particular piece, and and that usually goes fairly easy, air quotes fairly easily, on <laughs> uh, what happens. But then you start to add more complexity, right? You start to have to orchestrate these multiple services. You start dealing with um, uh, asynchronous calls. You start you start dealing with a variety of other issues. So how do you, as you continue to evolve, what are the next steps of things that you need to pay attention to as you go from one
1: service to two service to 10 services? So one of the key things, Wes, and it's an overarching concern, is getting the platform right. So whatever you're doing, you know, be it, again, monolith microservices, but definitely microservices, you are deploying onto some form of platform even if that's a, um, you know, bare metal, pretty much. Yeah, you've got some bare metal and you're chucking an OS on top and running, say, executables or or whatever. So the platform becomes super important. I've noticed this. I've got away in a few companies. We've been working um, for various reasons. We we couldn't change the current platform they had, bare metal. And when we were deploying one, two, three services, no big deal. You start getting to more than that. And then operationally, it's quite challenging how you orchestrate, how you schedule the various services. And then I started valuing in the teams I was working with. Together, we started to, to learn and value what I'm now thinking as platform dependencies, things like service discovery, routing, fault tolerance, all, all those things. Because in effect, one thing constantly I have to remind myself and, and, and other people as well is that microservices are effectively a distributed system. Right. Yeah. Even if you're running them, you know, one in one thing, you are one container, shall I say? You're breaking the your application up so there is an inherent sort of flexibility that comes with that because we can now split things and scale things and work on them independently but there's a bunch of properties we need because we are splitting things out and they typically are operational concerns how do we observe the the new services those things so that in my mind is a super important step when you go above those three services you're gonna definitely have to make sure you get the platform supporting the future services you're going to work on Because by that point, you typically have a good feel for how you're going to build the services. You might be going just one language, you might be going polyglot, but well, often by, say, the third service, you have a feel for the framework you need. Right. Some companies I worked with, we were using Java, for example. By, you know, a couple of services in, we developed a Maven archetype, which was like the basically the, the nucleus of, or a kernel, you could argue, of a service. And I worked with some other companies, JavaScript, um, Ruby. We got to the same kind of point. There's there's examples out in the wild, like Finagle is Twitter's one. Um, Netflix had Carry On, which is kind of very similar to what you need there. But yeah, once you've got those kind of, those frameworks for your microservices, it's all about the platform underneath them as well.
0: So you've decided that you're going to use something like Finagle. You've got a, a kind of CICD pipeline. You're able to commit code and get it out into a uh, production environment in a reliable kind of way. So that's, that implies the culture, the kind of DevOps mindset that, that you need mm-hmm. to have as well. Now when you start to spin up these extra services, what types of things do you need to consider as you start to bring all these things out into production?
1: So I'm guessing the key thing would be observability. Right? Okay. So I don't know if you're sort of heading in, in that direction. Observability has always been important, but now we've got multiple things in play, knowing not only are the individual things working correctly, but is the glue working between them? And most importantly, is the overall system doing what you're expecting? I mean, that, that's, you know, again, whatever technology you're using, whatever architecture style you're using, ultimately, it's delivering value to someone and you need to ensure that, that value is being delivered. So I've done a lot of work in um, previous clients, putting in observability features into services. So we're talking not only tech stuff like, you know, queue lengths and latency, that kind of stuff, but also business metrics. And they can be like a genuine game changer if you get them right as well.
0: Yeah. Can, can you give me an example when you say like a business matri- uh, metrics? because, I mean, identifying what that one most important thing is, is probably another one of the really critical steps when you're trying to figure out metrics. <laughs> how, how do you identify some of the uh, business metrics that you want to measure, for example?
1: Yes, yeah, so there's a great book by Alistair Kroll, I think it is. He talks about um, lean metrics. So I took a lot of cues from that book. I think, I think I've got it right. But yeah, one of those, um, uh, that book was really useful for me. If we're looking purely at the business metrics, it's always connected to the value you're trying to deliver. Typically, that can be raw money in terms of like, are we making money? Those kind of things. Often it's the happy path journeys in my experience. So if you're, again, e-commerce website, the happy paths are... Can you search for products? Can you look at products? Can you add them to your basket? And can you check out?
0: Orders per second, yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Exactly, those kind of things. If you can't check out, um, you know, the business is, is losing money. So the, from looking at those critical happy paths, those user journeys, the metrics kind of spring out. You, you already mentioned was exactly, like orders per second. um, conversion in general are people suddenly dropping off at a stage in the pipeline there that's a bit suspicious maybe we've accidentally broken the checkout I've had that one in one one project I worked on in the past um, so I think in combination with doing some reading around some of the theory like Alistair's book and so forth and in com- com- uh, combination with actually chatting to your business and and going through the actual journeys, that that is critical. There's a lot of work actually at the moment going on around event storming, which is very interesting. So it's another technique, much like context mapping in the DDD world, but event storming talks about uh, identifying events within your business not technical events but as an actual events, such as you know order dispatched to those kind of things or order, order accepted often when you identify those things through something like um, event storming the metrics again speak for themselves because you're literally tracking orders per second those kind of things
0: what about tracing and how do you um, create an environment where that you can replicate the path through a system
1: so that you can find you know bad things that are happening Yeah, so distributed tracing, super important. I only learned that one, actually, in my second go with microservices. So the aforementioned IAT one, we didn't do distributed tracing, but we had a bunch of problems which led us towards the end of that project to start thinking we should, and I actually moved on to a new role then. So I've used Zipkin a heck of a lot. Again, we're not on the high street, the the sort of... um, oh, I must've been working with me about three years ago when Zipkin was just becoming popular and it's becoming sort of consumable by other developers. We started using that a lot. The key enabler for this, and it's again, it's an old technique as many of them are, but the key enabler is correlation IDs. So you need some notion of passing a correlation ID throughout your stack. Any request comes in the front door, sort of the API gateway or some other point of ingress, and it gets assigned an ID, a correlation ID. And then you must propagate that ID down through the stack, like in a header or or those, that's a typical way of doing it in an HTTP header or putting it in a message metadata. So, So if you're using something like Rabbit or ActiveMQ and then propagate those down through the stack. And then you can usually pull out all the data you need by mapping the correlation IDs together. So one request comes in But it might get fanned out, a bunch of services handle it, those kind of things. And then you can not only say log with the correlation ID. So after the fact, you can look at all the logs and join them together and get an aggregated view of everything that happened. But you can use things like Zipkin to actually, in real time, sample requests going right the way through your application. And that correlation ID is the magic there that enables you to tie them all up.
0: Right. Makes total sense. So another question that I... I hear a lot about in the space of creating microservices in your kind of internal API. A lot of people are starting to use binary protocols to be able to kind of improve the the performance between inter-service communication and and not have that kind of JSON delay. Um, What are you seeing or what is your experience around kind of JSON versus like binary
1: protocols for inter-service communication? Yeah, we definitely fell into the JSON way, sort of REST and HTB and JSON being the de facto kind of standard. I've, I've seen that in many clients I've worked with. I like JSON in that it's very interoperable. That's the kind of cool thing. REST, for example, you know, if you've got Python one end, Java the next, it, it works right. really well. I've even seen back in classical SOA days where SOAP didn't work across platforms. Yeah, you do. So I like, it was really quite painful, that, some of that stuff. So I like the idea of rest being and rest and JSON being easily consumable but i totally agree with you i reckon we waste countless energy cycles deserializing and serializing objects to JSON, and it's you know that's one way to look at. it's kind of a shame but we you know not only are we wasting energy but we're spending money on that energy doing that sort of computation of serialization and deserialization there is a bunch of other things i think you get with binary protocols in, in addition to that as well. I mean, clearly the performance is great. There's um, less cost for serializing and deserializing and less data going over the wire typically. But the cool thing with these kind of things like Thrift and Avro and um, gRPC, is they are an interface definition language, an IDL. So you can specify the contract. You know, that's what you need to do in terms of sending data over the wire in binary format. You always need a very clear contract, a very clear specification. And that can actually add a lot of value in and of itself. Absolutely, yeah. As much as um, JSON and REST is super sort of taking advantage of, say, Postal's law again, you can literally send any amount of JSON you want at an endpoint, and the endpoint can just pick out exactly what it wants. So you might get 20 megs worth of data coming in, you can pick out, you know, 10Ks worth of JSON, but you've still got to deserialize the whole thing. Uh, and in general, it's it, it can lead to very casual programming, shall I say, in terms of, ah, oh, we'll just chuck me anything, I'll check you anything back. And yes, it's very flexible, but an IDL, you you have to think more about the interaction between services. Think more about the types you're sending over the wire. Think more about the interactions. Are you streaming data? Very popular in the the reactive space at the moment, kind of the ability to keep the channel open, stream data, apply back pressure, all that kind of good stuff. Whereas... REST and, and JSON and that kind of technology is very much anchored around the request response right. kind of life cycle as well. So there's a bunch of things there. But I, uh, I really see the value in binary protocols. I like gRPC in particular. And gRPC has been picked up by the Cloud Native Computing Foundation now, which I think is pretty awesome as well. So they're collecting together a bunch of very interesting technologies. And for me, having, yeah, gRPC in the stack gives you a lot of advantages over REST and JSON.
0: So I've got a question. Let's connect those two. Tracing, gRPC, um, and protobuf, and the binary protocol going across. How, how, what's that experience like with something like Zipkin? Is it pretty natively well-supported for you to be able to still do tracing with binary protocols?
1: So in terms of native supporting I'm I'm not overly sure on that one, because obviously now you're looking into a binary protocol as opposed to looking into text going right. over the wire. So that's very different. But my experience comes with using some uh, using something called Linkerd and Linkerd is a JVM based service mesh. And it's very popular at the moment. Uh, Linkerd has actually been brought into the CNCF as well. So it's being a sponsored project there. A couple of the technologies popping up in this space. IBM wrote one. There's uh, Envoy, which I uh, think was from Lyft at the moment. And um, this notion of a service mesh basically addresses a lot of these issues of inter-service communication and observability is a key component of that so I know Linkerd has support for Zipkin so you can wire up all your GRPC stuff it's all going over TLS as well but it's still you know you can still pull out the details into Zipkin from those GRPC based communications.
0: Very nice. Um, I want to switch gears just a bit you did a, a talk, I did a few talks on the uh, seven deadly sins of microservices. And throughout there, you went through things like lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, um, envy, <laughs> and price. A bunch of great ideas. So I wanted to talk just a bit about some of these things uh, to kind of wrap up. Yeah. Uh, so lust, It's um, seven, these are, again, the seven deadly sins of microservices. For lust, you used using
1: the latest and greatest tech. Could you elaborate? Yeah, so the classic at the moment is I see people wanting to move to microservices. At the same time, there's a bunch of very cool technologies out there which are kind of supporting and they have driven the success of microservices. I think that's unarguable in some ways. I'm thinking of things like containers, like Docker, Rocket, things like Kubernetes, Mesos, Amazon ECS, all those kind of things. So it's super tempting when you're embracing one thing, like an architectural style, like microservices, to embrace a lot of other technologies because, you know, hand and glove is the kind of mental yeah but in my mind they are very separate things you can do architectures in a multiple uh, you can sorry implement architectures using many technologies and you can use many different technologies to implement many different architectures as well so what i was getting at with the the deadly sin of lust is and, and i totally suffer from this i got to put my hand up and say sure many of us who are in the space we love playing with technology yes why well, we got into it partly we love building things and part of that particularly in it is experimentation you know, in perhaps the uh, actual real building world, a brick is a brick with many years formulating how the brick should be and so forth. But right. we are nowhere near that in IT. You know, the container is definitely not standardized yet. <laughs> so one thing I've seen people get tempted at is, is, yeah, getting lost in the technology details. And again, hands up, I've, I've early on in my career, I've done this with, say, Java frameworks. I used to get a bit lost in Java frameworks back in the day. And now I kind of realize you can pull back and there's often core principles and core things that can be delivered by by technologies. But a lot of my examples in that lust sin is be very careful about, cho- when you make a choice to bring something into the stack, be very careful about the operational overhead, the skills you know gap between what you've currently got. And the key, key thing, and I've got a separate presentation that's available on YouTube, which people can search for as well. Uh, I did it for a CTO meetup in London, is to evaluate technology correctly. And not only evaluate technology correct at a technical level, as in if I'm a developer, if I'm an architect, but if you're a CTO, evaluating architecture is super important. And arguably something I experienced when I became a CTO for years back, uh, It's very hard because as a CTO, you've got a lot of business responsibilities. So you're often getting dragged into those and you don't necessarily feel in a place to comment on the technology. You might be, you know, perhaps not coding as much or coding at all sometimes. But you've got to have something in your tool belt, a bunch of skills as a CTO that says, this is how I know this is not just fancy technology coming in. It's actually actually going to deliver value. So if people go to my slideshow, they can see that talk. It's actually a very popular talk. It's one I put together quite quickly, but I suddenly realized this has got a lot of value because as people move up to tech leads, the CTOs, how do you keep that kind of, that uh, how do you keep dialed in to making the correct choices at the appropriate level of the technologies?
0: That's an awesome skill to have. I'd love to hear any advice you have on that. <laughs> it's hard, yeah. <laughs> well, Daniel lots more here to talk about and you can find the full presentation out online to be able to learn more about the seven de- deadly sins plus the seven more deadly sins <laughs> in <microservices. laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well I enjoyed chatting with you I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me thanks a lot Wes. great fun